You're listening to The Real Well Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Some people get nervous about buying their first property and wondering how they're going to manage it. And then once they do, they realize they could do more and the goal is maybe to get to 10. Can you imagine what it would take to get 200 single family rental properties under management that you own without other investors? Well, I'm Kathy Fetke and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Our guest today has done just that. Elaine Steigerberg of Black Swan Real Estate is a psychiatrist, a mother of four, and owner of Black Swan Real Estate, a vertically integrated private equity firm. She has raised $60 million and manages a portfolio of over a thousand doors and $300 million of assets under management. So I can't wait to hear how she's done all of this. Elaine, welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. You have a really impressive background, $300 million of assets under management? That's right. Is that with partners or or just you and your spouse? So a good portion of that is owned by just my husband and I, and then a portion of that is owned inside of joint ventures, and then a portion of that is owned inside of our private equity funds. The portion that just Nick and I own is about $100 million. Wow. Okay. And one of the things that you've been able to do is scale your single family rental portfolio. I know you've got all kinds of investments in different asset classes, but this one really caught my attention because that's not easy to do. So Mm -hmm. how many single family homes do you have under, under management and how did you get there? So we have 200 single family homes in our portfolio. Our overall portfolio is about 1,300 doors. We have 1,000 here in Rochester, Minnesota, 300 in Tacoma, Washington. The entirety of our single family home portfolio is here in Rochester. And most of our single single family home portfolio is owned by Nick and I. That's how we started our real estate investing and journey. That's how we've scaled. We've never sold a single asset. We're big believers in the Burr business model, continuing to get those golden geese and have them create profit for us in an ongoing fashion, despite the fact that we have all of our capital out of them. And I'm, you know, I'm sure we'll talk throughout our time here together, but we started you know, doing that all the way back from our very first asset and just continued to do it, continued to do it. We eventually were able to build a townhome community with all of our own capital and then take that scale into our joint ventures and private equity. But it all started with our single family home portfolio. And something I also hope we you know, can address during our time here together Because a lot of folks will say, like, you have to graduate out of single family or that it's like a stepping stone to larger assets. And I really think that's, you know, kind of missing a lot of the value that comes from single family homes because they're like little piggy banks and they're so easy to buy, to renovate, to do a cash out refi. You can have different ones going in different parts of town at different times. Although we don't sell, there's, of course, the opportunity to sell a single family home much easier than a large apartment building. And I really think of single family homes as the best way to generate the most amount of wealth quickly. Large multifamily is more of an efficient way to place capital. But despite our scale, despite our many large apartment buildings, we still do a lot of single family home investing because there's just so many pros to investing in single family homes. Yeah, you know, it's diversification is so important. And most importantly, understanding what you're investing in. So if you're diversified right now, a lot of multifamily is is struggling mm-hmm. because of the interest rate changes and and single family not so much. So again, having that diversification is is super helpful. Yep. So how did you scale? Because most people understand that they can get 10, 
Fannie Freddie loans per person. Mm -hmm. So if you're Mm -hmm. married, you could get up to 20 doors Mm -hmm. um, with good financing through Fannie Freddie. Well, it's getting harder and harder, but used to be real good. Yeah. Uh, and and if you bought a duplex or fourplex, then you'd you'd really scale that way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You could get up to what is that? You know, eighty units mm-hmm. uh, with Fannie mm-hmm. Freddie. What do you do after that? I mean, how how did you get financing? Excellent question. So there's there's a piece I want to address right before talking about um, financing, and that's about the down payment, right? Because that's a that's a huge hurdle. That's for also people. an issue, right? That's yeah. A, so yeah. where where does the down payment come from to even you know get get the loan to keep buying those properties? Um, when when my husband and I first started investing, I had just left my career to start medical school. We had just gotten married. I was hoping a baby would come along. So we were at the point of our lives where we had the least amount of income. We had just cut our income in half, but we. Knew Knew we wanted to do real estate investing. When we had asked people who were a generation ahead of us, you know, what have you done to develop wealth? We kept hearing real estate investing over and over and over. So we knew that despite these headwinds of me stepping back from my career, just being married, hoping a baby would come along, we wanted to get into real estate investing. But we also knew we didn't have the household income that we could just save for one down payment after another, after another, after another. It took us three years to save for our first down payment. And we knew, gosh, we want to buy you know more than one house every three years. We want this to be a fast track to wealth, not a you know slow, steady, you know, until we're you know at traditional retirement age. So we always did a Burr business model because we knew right from the beginning that we had to recoup that initial down payment so that we could use it to buy the next thing. So we bought a distressed property, fixed it up. We did a lot of sweat equity back in those you know, first original properties just to save as much money as we could. And then did a cash out refi, had all of our money back, actually had more money back than we originally had started with, had the house and it was cash flowing. And there was definitely a moment when we got the check from that very first cash out refi it was almost like a magical moment of like, gosh, we have this house that's very nicely renovated, that has a wonderful family living in it, that's cash flowing. And we have all of our money back and we have more money. Like, let's just figure out how we can do this as many times as possible for the rest of our lives. And then exactly as you describe, we hit that headwind of, well, now what after we hit all of our conventional loans? So it took us several years to get there. We were not able to get to 20 conventional loans, although that's you know kind of the mythical, like ultra efficient way, because I didn't have an income. We were only able to get to 10 with my husband's name. And then we had to decide to go to commercial lending. And I remember at that time, so much mental drama, right? I think our minds tell us stories about how things will be very hard or it's impossible, but really it's just a new skill set to learn. And now when I look at, you know, now all of the lending that I get is in the world of commercial lending. And when I look at conventional lending, even though back then I thought of conventional lending as so much easier than commercial lending, now I think of conventional lending as a huge pain in the butt because it's all algorithm based. The underwriters have to have all the paperwork, all the, you know, proof of insurance and property taxes. And they're looking at DTI and all of these things. Whereas commercial lending is very relationship based and a good commercial lender looks at your balance sheet and your overall business plan and who you are as a person and as a you know overall entity. And they just get it in a way that I find, you know, traditional conventional mortgage underwriters don't because they're more helping people with, you know, their personal home or one or two investment properties. So it's certainly a skill set to learn to get into commercial lending, but it unlocks so much potential 
when we moved into commercial lending, you know, the first couple of houses we did just, you know, one-offs putting, you know, kind of what felt like conventional mortgages on them. But then as we built relationships with banks, we created what we call a guidance line where we would get like a million or even three million approved all at once. And then to say, if you're the banker, hey, Kathy, let's get three million approved. And then as we renovate these homes, we're going to come to you. You'll appraise them and then you'll disperse the funds out. That's a big part of how we were able to scale so quickly is because we got much of the debt approved in big chunks. Okay. Okay. So it's really a matter of having a a, a bit of a track record first, and mm-hmm. then a good banking relationship, someone who can Absolutely. look at that track record and, and look at your reserves and so forth and, and put some faith in you. Absolutely. Yeah. I've always thought of real estate investing is like half the deal and half the debt. And for much of you know our investing career, say from like 2010 to you know, 2020, 2021, almost all of the focus was on the deal because debt was so plentiful and so easy to get. But think about like, you know, think about, you know, I always like to think of like really crazy hypotheticals. You could overpay for a house, just a, a bananas amount. But if it was 0% interest with a 1000 year amortization, it might make sense to buy that house. Mm-hmm. Conversely, you could way underpay for a house, get a really good deal on a house. But if the interest rate is 70% with a two-year amortization, might not make sense to do that deal. So it's the deal and the debt together that create the, you know, the magic in real estate investing. And there's more creativity that's needed around debt right now because deals are harder to come by. There's fewer of them. So now there needs to be more emphasis on the debt that is backing those deals. But it's always been both of them together that really creates the magic. All of our debt is with local regional banks. We have all fixed rate debt. We have personal relationships with all of our bankers, go out to lunch with them, know their spouses, you know, know about their children. And they know us and they know our business model and they know our vision. We're always showing them the vision, all sorts of things like we take them to properties that they don't even hold the debt, but just to say, this is what our typical renovation looks like. This is the vision we have for our homes, for the neighborhoods so that they can see, oh, if I was lending to them. I see what the final product would look like. Would you say we've lost the magic today? Is, could people still find it with high interest rates and high home prices? I think so. And I think, in fact, it's just, you know, it's just shifting the focus that in, you know, say, pick any random year, 2015, 2016, debt was so easy to get that you didn't need to think very hard about it. You just called a couple bankers and they wrote some loans and that was that. And, the you know, it was basically free money because the interest rates were so low. Now, I really feel like that's an opportunity for people to have a competitive edge that if they're you know, able to get a little bit lower of an interest rate, if they're able to get a 30 year amortization instead of 20 or 25, if they're able to shave a little bit off of origination to decrease their closing costs, you know, all of these little micro optimizations that are generally only available in commercial lending, right? In conventional lending, it's a little harder to negotiate these things. Then that can be the difference between, you know, you and I could be trying to buy the same house, you know, for the same price. But if one of us can get a little bit better debt, that's going to be, you know, the one, the one of us that prevails. So I think it's an opportunity to put our thinking caps on, to build relationships with lenders, to really think about how can we optimize every piece of the lending relationship. And that can be the thing that, you know, that really allows people to prevail in 2020, 2021, it was speed, getting to, you know, writing cash offers with no contingency. It was that set of things that people needed to compete. Today, it's getting really good debt together to compete. 
Mm, yeah, just you have to learn a new skill set, like you said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, there's also the property management piece on on scaling your real estate business and your and your rentals. So, how did you scale? How many did you say single family homes? We have about two hundred single family 200. homes. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so. Yep. And not all in your backyard, basically. So you've had to They, they are. All, all of our single family homes are here. Yep. Okay. So you're managing yeah. those yourselves? We are. Yep. So all the way back in the very beginning, our very first property, we self-managed largely because we had to, you know, because we needed to squeeze every single penny of profit. But also we wanted to learn about it. We wanted to get some sense of, well, what is property management all about? And if, it turns out we really liked it. And both my husband and I come from entrepreneurial backgrounds. We've had businesses outside of real estate. And so we really like operations. So we self-managed our portfolio. When we got to about 25 or 30 doors that we owned ourselves, that's when it got to be just too much. There was always a maintenance ticket. There was always a lease showing something, you know, bookkeeping always needed to happen. So at that point, we had to ask ourselves, okay, do we hire a third-party property manager or do we create a property management company for ourselves? And we made that really tough decision of creating an in-house property management company. And I'm so glad we did because that you know, certainly was a big part of what allowed us to scale as quickly, what allowed us to scale into multifamily. Um, I, I'm a big believer that operations is everything. Kind of mm-hmm. you know, said another way, someone can buy kind of a ho-hum deal, but take really good care of it and do really well. Conversely, someone can buy a grand slam of a deal, but if they operate it poorly, I mean, they could lose everything in you know six months to a year. Operations is everything. So for us, we chose to self-manage and then to eventually create a property management company. If someone doesn't want to self-manage, then it's really just about finding that rock star property manager that has an investor mindset first, because you know, believe it or not, you know this, but investing and property management are not really the same thing. No, no. So hiring a property manager that maybe first was an investor, maybe has some investment properties of their own that really thinks from the mindset of an investor, that's critical to scale. So for us, we created it ourselves. Not everyone may want to do that, but it would be critical in interviewing a property manager to ask, what is your personal investing experience? What do you think about real estate investing? Do you understand what a PL is? Do you understand you know, how to treat residents to you know, keep them long-term, to minimize vacancy, you know, all of those efficiencies and find an investor-focused property manager. That's exactly our network at Real Wealth. We have a network of real investors, people who mm-hmm. invest personally, who also offer property management so that they understand both sides. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, I mean, that's the biggest mistake a lot of people do is they just hire a, a real estate agent thinking that real estate agent's going to know how to help them find an investment property when maybe mm-hmm. that agent's never ha- never owned one and has no idea. Right. Yeah, yeah. And is guessing on rents. Please, people don't do that. Uh, a lot of times realtors have no clue what the rents might be, you know, if they're not yeah. a manager. So don't yeah. And something, that. you know, as little as, you know, 25 or $50 a month of, you know, if you, if you, if you target a little too high on rent and a little too low on maintenance expenses and, you know, maybe forget to recalculate property taxes that might go up at sale. Like just a few things can go from a deal being a grand slam to being a complete dud. And a typical real estate agent may not know those things. It doesn't mean they're bad people. It just means they have a focus on getting, you know, families into their dream homes. Investor agents understand all of those intricacies and can really make sure that that pro forma is honed in so that you know that what you're acquiring is going to deliver, you know, the financial outcomes that you're hoping for. And how do you hone that in from an operations perspective? Because we just put 
you know, a, a percentage of what it might cost in future repairs. But do you actually have a system for uh, identifying what those costs might be in the future, the, the uh, you know, the operating expenses? So what we did is we created our own pro forma calculator. It's very simple. Anyone can create it on Excel or Google Sheets. It's basically just monthly rent and then all of the expenses. So management, taxes, vacancy, maintenance, CapEx, I'm sure I'm missing one, but you know all of the expenses and then um, you know calculating uh, net operating income, debt service, what portion of that is interest, what portion of that is debt pay down and then ca- calculating cash flow from that. And I'm a big believer that no matter how much we try to target everything exactly, like you just really never know. Like in our market in Rochester, Minnesota, leasing something in June, a single family home could be an additional $100 per month on that lease than leasing something in November or December. So as much as we try to turn all of our leases over in the summer, like that doesn't always happen, right? Sometimes families need to leave earlier, those sorts of things. So our pro forma is so simple that we can plug in all of those numbers in just a few minutes. And then from there, we just toggle things up and down. Well, what if we got an extra $50 per month in rent? Or what if we did have to lease it in the winter season and we got $100 less? Or what if property taxes did go up 15%? Or what if maintenance costs went up? Or what if we were able to um, you know, main, or keep it occupied really well and there was no vacancy for a few years? But because each line of that pro forma only takes 30 seconds to change the numbers and then it's all just calculated by the formula, we can do, say... 50 or 100 examples within like 15 minutes. And that sounds overwhelming, but it's all based on the formula that's inside of Excel or Google Sheets. And then the reality is always somewhere in the average, right? So as long as you have really good um, basic assumptions, and then you know that there will be variability, some things you'll do really well, and you'll come in under cost, other things, you know, no matter how hard you try, the cost will be a little bit higher, but the average will come in somewhere. That's been really helpful for us building our portfolio. What I've steered away from is giving myself a false belief that I can hone everything into the dollar and that that's what's going to happen because that's not been my reality. I really think of our investment portfolio as a living, breathing thing. And so I like the, the idea of coming up with 50 scenarios in just 15 minutes in that pro forma calculator and then knowing that the real outcomes will be somewhere in the average there. So you'll see often on realtor.com and and just in the news, the top places for investing and, you know, the best cities and blah, blah, blah. Everybody is always looking for the hottest market. You built your portfolio in Rochester, Minnesota, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're like, where is that exactly? (laughs) I I don't know. And, um, and it's not on the hot markets list. So, and it sounds cold. (laughs) It sounds really cold. So what, um, so how do you make that work? Because I'm assuming appreciation isn't super high in the in that area. So it actually is. It is. So, oh, it's your, yeah. it's your secret weapon. Okay. It is. Yeah. So Rochester, Minnesota is home of the Mayo Clinic, which has consistently been rated, you know, the best hospital in the country, even the best hospital in the world. And then in addition to Mayo, Rochester, Minnesota is consistently rated in the top like one to five every year for the last about 30 years as best small town in America, best place to raise a family, you know, those sorts of things in like Money Magazine, Niche, those sorts of things. So it's a great community with a great longstanding culture 
culture with this very strong employer that's the best of its class in the entire world. So Rochester is really a, a tourist town for medical tourism. And then the incomes here are pretty high because there's very high paid healthcare workers and tech workers that are supporting Mayo and IBM is also here. And, you know, to kind of you know speak directly to what you said, like not a lot of people know where Rochester is or, you know, that Mayo Clinic is here or the economic drivers behind Rochester. But it's a market where we can get both cash flow and significant appreciation in addition to the forced appreciation that we're able to do through our renovations. So what I really think for investors, particularly for single family, getting into larger multifamily, you know, it's a little bit of a different game. But I think for single family, people should really consider to themselves, is there a way you can invest in your local market? Because you know things about your local market that other people that are reviewing a spreadsheet just won't be able to understand. You'll know where the new school's going in or the road expansion is happening or, you know, on this street, it's a great part of town, but you go one street over and things really change. Like you just can't get that on a spreadsheet. Some people are in markets that it's just really hard to invest in, really high cost of living, high regulation, other reasons yep. That, <laughs> yep, that, that make it really hard to invest there. So what I encourage people to do is to look for something that's maybe two or three hours radius away that you can get to in one car ride. You don't even have to stop to use the bathroom because you probably know something about that area. Maybe not as much as you know, you know, the town that you live in, but you know something about that area. You can get to it frequently. You can build great relationships with people there. Um, you can visit it as frequently as you want. You know, despite the fact that our properties are all within a 20 minute radius of us, I don't visit them very often, but I know I could. And I really mm -hmm. like that sense of security. And then if that doesn't work for someone, then think of a market where you have some sort of connection. Maybe you went to college there or you grew up there or parents live there or something where you're going to that area frequently. And I'm a big believer in optimizing the inefficiencies in a market rather than studying like the demographics and the economics of an area, because that's all information that's generally available to anyone. But to really have a deep competitive edge, you want to have information that's generally not available to everyone that allows you to succeed a little bit more. So when I kind of think through an algorithm of how someone might pick a market, that's what I think about is, is there any way that you can invest locally and really be a market expert in your local area? Okay, if not, can you find something within a two or three hour radius? Okay, if not, can you find a market that you have some sort of connection to and build a team with real estate agents and lenders and everything there, but you have some sort of area knowledge that can build your expertise there. Yeah, again, that's that's been our secret weapon at, at Real Wealth is having 15 different teams nationwide who know what's going on and no, nobody else does. Mm -hmm. A lot of times when you live somewhere, you're not paying attention to jobs that are coming in or, or investment in the area. I mean, a lot of people are, obviously we would be, but um, the average person might not be. Uh, mm -hmm. For example, that's how we got an incredible deal on an office building that we tore down and turned into, uh, you know, a single family home su subdivision was that the the owner of the office building had no idea that it was going to become the epicenter of the town. Like the, the city had planned mm -hmm. to completely mm -hmm. revitalize and move the city center there. It's in Dublin, California. And, uh, and we just got a great deal. So if you can mm -hmm. be, if you've got a team or if you're able to see what's coming in the yeah. area when others don't, that, 
that's the ticket. Well, yep. gosh, we're out of time and you ha- you're you so interesting. Elaine, thank you so much for joining me here on The Real Well Show. We'll just have to have yeah. you back to talk more about this. I agree. Operations is everything. Well, yep. it's all everything, right? Your your acquisition is, is really important. Your financing is important in operations. It's So educating yourself is, yep. is where it's at. And I think finding, you know, to speak to that, finding the area that you really excel in and knowing, you know, Dan Sullivan from Strategic Coach, he calls that the unique ability. For us, that's operations because we've always been entrepreneurial. But for other people, it might be that acquisitions piece or the debt piece. And you're right, you have to have some expertise in all of them or have really key team members that have expertise in all of them. But finding what is really exciting to you, what really lights you up, what comes naturally to you and leaning into that. I just had a coaching call with Dan yesterday and he said, you know, in American culture, we get, we get taught to like fix our weaknesses. And so we get really good at just honing our weaknesses, but instead we should really focus on our strengths on what our unique ability is and do really well at that thing. So if that's acquisitions for you, do that. If that's financing for you, do that. If that's operations, do that. You have to have key people that are doing the other things that you know aren't your, your exact strengths. But that's what's so fun about real estate investing is there's so many different things to do in different ways to add value to the overall package that you can do what is really exciting to you and get the outcomes. Love it. Thank you so much for your input, yeah. Elaine. Hope to have you back I'm here happy. on The Real Wealth Show. Thank you. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. If you would like help getting your real estate portfolio started or learning how to scale it, just go to realwealthshow.com. You'll have hundreds of real estate webinars to help you on your way, and it's all free. Again, that's realwealthshow.com. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.